stay there. You know what? I believe that every single person on this planet can make a difference. And I believe that we all have something to offer, something that's so unique that it will change somebody else's life. I believe we all deserve to step into our true selves. And I believe that every single person needs to feel great about themselves. I want you to step into who you truly are and I want you to make a difference for somebody else and for yourself. And I don't think it's that hard. It's a matter of putting one step in front of the other and just taking action. And I'm interviewing guests that have done just that. I'm Karen Vaughan. This is the Get Off The Bench podcast. And here is where you can make that decision to make your life count. It all starts with you saying yes. Howdy, and welcome back to another week of the Get Off the Bench podcast. Happiness. What do you think when I say that word? You know, for years, I have wondered and wondered and wondered, what is happiness? Like, how do we define it? And and, and I've asked a lot of people, and a lot of people say different things. So some people say happy. It's when you're happy. Some say when it's when you're content. Some people say, well, when it's it's when you're fulfilled or when you're smiling or when other people do good things, you know, and, and I have never seemed to find a, a universal, I guess, definition of what is happiness. And, and obviously it means different things to everybody. But it is one of those questions that I think we all ask. And I think it is one of those things. Happiness is one of those things that we all seek. Today I'm chatting with Michael Bartura and he is a happiness coach. And we get we get right into what is happiness and Michael talks a lot about it being contentment and a certain type of fulfillment. And there's a short term and there's a long term and it all comes from this, um, you know, self-knowledge and from asking the bigger questions and to be curious about, um, I guess, the meaning and purpose in your life. And this is a great conversation and it gets very, it's deeply philosophical, but we do end up talking about how to put this into action. And, and honestly, I think the sooner we reach a point in our lives where we start to ask the big questions and start to say, what is happiness? Who am I? What do I know about myself how do I make the world a better place you know what do I want to contribute how do I want to show up the sooner we start asking those questions whether we're 10 or 15 or 50 it doesn't matter like let's not wait to we're 50 or 60 and having a midlife crisis and then start asking questions let's ask them earlier that's for you younger people out there that you know can do it while you're 20 30 40 please do anyway this is a fantastic conversation and you are really going to love it so let's get into it welcome Michael Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Well, I'm pleased to have you. So that's a lucky we're a good duo, aren't we? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> let's, let's let's have a dance. <laughs> I love it. You just be careful which sort of dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, we're on tape. We're on tape. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. So you know, Michael, I'm I'm so keen to chat with you. And you know, you do um you're a happiness coach. Like let, let's just put it in under one umbrella, a happiness coach. And you know, I, I find that really I, I find it fantastic it's inspiring it's great it's all of those great things happiness is um one of those words you know that we we fling around and I remember when I worked in um, teaching disengaged youth and I said to one of the other teachers I said what is happiness and mm. he said happiness is happiness and I said yeah but how, how do you 
how do you know when you're happy? Like, and then, and it created a conversation that went on for months and months and months about happiness. So, I, I find the happiness topic very, very interesting, and and I I find that a lot of people have their own interpretations of you know, where they sit on the happiness scale and what it actually means. So I'm glad to be talking about it with you today. Yes. No, same here. I'm happy to be here. Ah, uh, well, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, okay. So so it, it's interesting because in a sense it's multi-layered, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we tend to call happiness when something in us uh, gets fulfilled or gratified or or you know we we experience a certain amount of pleasure and indeed if you look at uh, some of the literature especially say around um, uh, Zeligman you know the the Martin Zeligman who's sort of like the the father of positive psychology uh, he suggests this this sort of delineation between the kind of happiness that comes out of the fact that we we are pleased about something or a need has been gratified. Um, and then there's something in terms of delivering or embodying, um, you know, our values, our our, yeah. our sense of what we're good at, and and that gets sort of um, fulfilled. And then and then there is this whole much bigger conversation around meaning and purpose. And do I, you know, do I feel like I'm I'm expediting on my meaning and purpose in life? That sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, and so I I think. Um, you know the, the the trick for us is that we tend to kind of confuse happiness with a whole lot of stuff that we yearn for, and then when we get it fulfilled, uh, in in whether it's temporary or in the long terms, then there is a sense of like, okay, I must be happy. But sooner or later, most of us discover that okay, even the happiness that came from getting that thing that I wanted yeah. doesn't seem to last. So I would like to suggest that we could look at it in two different ways. One is there. There is a sort of a a temporal, a temporary happiness that is the relief of a need or the achievement of a yearning, uh, or the connection with another human being that is fulfilling for us. All good, yeah. Um, and all worthy of explorations and trying to figure out, you know, what is it that makes that work for me. And then there is this kind of like a sense of contentment mm. that comes out of understanding that you have the capacity to deal with the difficulties in life. And even when you're down from, you know, whatever it is that happens, because we're not in control and life tends to be up and down, you know, sometimes it's sunny and sometimes it's raining. If we're able to get to a point where our happiness is not a derivative of our experience, direct experience or conditions, um, more as an inner state of mind and heart in which we rest assured in our capacity to be able to hold on to what we see dear in life and to have a sense that whatever happens outside, I know how to handle it. Mm. That is a kind of like a happiness that I'm aiming for in my 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 coaching and my training work. So so it's a sense of resilience in you know in yeah. a way in which I I trust myself to be anchored and not flowing as to, well, today's a bad day, so I'm really unhappy. Yeah. And today's a great day, I'm really happy. And then there is no stability in it. So so I think those two need to play together for us to be really fulfilled. Yeah. I love and I love that you're saying about um resilience too, because I have this real solid this is my interpretation of, of resilience, and because of my own resilience, is it 
for me, I've got this underpinning um, optimism, do you, you know, and it's the that for me that, and, and I've seen it in others, is that belief that things are always going to, it'll be okay tomorrow, it'll be okay around the corner, you know, just, just keep going because no matter what today throws at you, there's always a belief in a better in a better tomorrow and a better better next hour. You know, Absolutely. everything's going to be okay. Yeah. So I think that. Oh, oh sorry. I'm I'm curious about um, the people who seek this. So, like, it, it's it's not just I'm seeking happiness. It's also see I'm seeking self knowledge. You know, I'm seeking to understand myself on a deeper level because you can't just say I want to be happy and therefore if I accept this, that's going to happen because you've got to do, you've got to actually change a deeper level under underneath you. And, and, and that, that quest for self knowledge sometimes scares people, do you know? So like I'm, I'm, I'm joining self-knowledge with what you're doing. So what would you call self-knowledge? Like how would you explain it or, you know, define yeah, it? I love that. I love that. Because if if we really want to address that second kind of inner layer of happiness that has got mm. less to do with the outside experience and more to do with what I decide to anchor myself in, that, in my experience, cannot come without self-knowledge. So I think the the fact mm. that you're connecting it as such is absolutely to the point, right? Mm. And, and in fact, if you look again at the literature, some people talk about this idea of, you know, hedonic versus eudaimonic sort of happiness, in which hedonic is that pleasure sort of part, right? Mm. Enjoyment. Uh, but the one that is eudaimonic, which is an older sort of term, uh, is really about the meaning and purpose. And you cannot figure out your meaning or purpose without um, without actually understanding yourself, without knowing yourself. So so when we talk about self-knowledge, um, it's a little bit like uh, we really need to start to understand who am I. And when I say who am I, then you need to sort of, you, you want to tap into the experience of what happens to you when you express yourself as I, you say, I am, right? I'm being interviewed to a podcast. I'm feeling happy today. I'm feeling not so happy today. That experience of I is actually almost like a constant feature in the way that we identify ourselves with something. Yes. Yeah. I might say I'm Australian. You know, I'm an immigrant, obviously, but but I might say, okay, I feel like I'm Australian. I've been here on and off for oh, oh, a couple of decades. Um and when I say I am Australian, that experience evolved to involved two different parts. It involved this experiential, felt experience, felt sense of I that I feel myself as I am, and then mm. it, some sort of a description or an identity which can be, you know, I'm a man, I'm an Australian, you know, I I believe in this particular God or in that particular God, all that sort of stuff, right? So there is this. This self-knowledge allow you to explore the tension or the continuum between that experience of I, which if 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 you tune into it really interestingly, is common to every human being on the planet. In other words, mm -hmm. there is this sort of universal identity, sometimes it is called. I think Alain de Bouton was talking about this idea. Um, the, the universal identity of being a human being, which is whatever it is that you are, you're still looking for happiness. You still mm -hmm. want that you're not hungry, like that is common to everyone, right? Yeah. You still get upset if someone is laughing at you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that that tension between that experience of I and then the story that we tell ourselves about who we are, which yeah. is also part of you know our self knowledge, like you know how do we identify ourselves with what, what, how do our values show up in terms of what we you know stand for and what not. Um, but 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 in that sort of continuum, which is both a continuum and a tension, because because we tend to either connect with that experience of, yeah, I'm an Australian, I'm an older man, blah, 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 blah. But I always have that experience underneath. So I am, right? That mm. experience the exploration of self-knowledge. And so when uh, someone like Socrates says, you know, know thyself, he talks about this important feature of turning inward and reflecting to understand who is that I, right? What does that mean? And how do I show up in that yeah. in a way? feeling for me mm, I, I love that I think that um it, it's scary for a lot of people do you know I, I I run you know leadership workshops and I I get people to put on paper you know who they are and all that kind of stuff and there's a lot of there's often how can I say it often a not a resistance but a stalling it's a like I don't know who I am, you know, and if I if I put it on paper, it, it seems to be really, you know, I have to face it, you know, that that kind of thing. And do you think um, did like does it take a particular person? I don't know. You might not know the answer to this, but you know, the people that you've dealt with, dealt with, do, do you think do you think it takes a particular type of person to seek self knowledge to you know to then sort of chase happiness or then to sort of chase contentment? Or do you think that it's it comes from being in a really shitful place, you know, with with really <laughs> solid adversity? Like, like, what what makes us reach a point? Do you think that that says oh, I want to know myself better? I really want to sit in contentment. I really want to find peace. I I don't know. You might not know the answer, but I'm curious. Well, I I can't say that I know the answer for every person. I think it's a very individual pursuit. Yeah. That say that does seems to be a connection between the experience of suffering for which we cannot make sense mm. and the beginning of a process by which you start to asking deep questions like what is the meaning of all that? Why am I suffering? Like, you know, I'm doing I'm being a good person, I'm doing everything that, you know, sort of I think is the right thing to do, and still life doesn't seem to work. What what's going on? And of course, it, you know, this is not a new question. Like if you look at the Bible, yeah. you know, yeah. the uh, book of Job, right, in the Old Testament is all about that. How come there's a good man who's, you know, like, who's suffering and he's losing all his, you know, sort of his family and his possessions, and how come, you know, people who are supposedly not so good, they seem to be thriving, all that sort of stuff, and we still see it around us today. So so this this sort of exploration of what is it that, that um, I'm here for and why does it seem to be that I'm suffering but I know that I kind of like I deserve better, or I want better, or all that sort of uh, inner deliberation. Sorry, I'm 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 being I'm I'm as I said I'm sitting in a car and there's a very noisy truck next to me. Oh, I can't hear it. That's good. <laughs> I can't hear it. Okay, fantastic. Um, that deliberation in itself is already the process by which we start to ask questions about who we are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. and some people need a lot of suffering before they do that, right? They need to be getting, you know, like they believe in some an idea and it doesn't work, and then they try again and it doesn't work, and they try again and it doesn't work. 
And then they're like, okay, like obviously the strategy that I'm engaging with that I think will get me the results I want in life does not work. Why doesn't it work? Who am I? Blah, 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 blah. Or sometimes you get people who are just naturally connected to, you know, this sense of, you can talk talk about seeking, you can talk about a sense of a spiritual, um, um, you know, sort of interest. Uh, some people have that that sense because they got it through their, you know, through their tradition and through their parenting and they naturally connect with it. Some people resent it when they're children and then they find it, uh, you know, as older people, maybe in a different, like, for example, I grew up in a Jewish tradition and yet probably most of the relationship that I have with my own experience in life, if I needed to use a language to explain it, I would use more a language around, you know, the Buddhist tradition and and and, yeah. and some other traditions that have sort of explored along the way. So I think that it's a long way to say that it's a very individual thing. Um, I think most of us are driven to uh, something deeper, something meaningful. We want a connection with meaningful. We meant to have that connection. There is a fascinating work done by a woman. I think her name is Lisa Miller from the US, who is a psychologist who is exploring the connection between uh, spirituality and the mind. Yeah. He actually discovers that there is certain parts in our brain that are literally wired to develop that spiritual connection. Wow. And interestingly enough, that same parts are parts that are also participate in when people feeling, for example, lack of meaning, lack of purpose. That's the parts of the brains that are participating in the experience of being depressed. So there is obviously something in our makeup, mm. our psychological makeup, that is meant to wander and connect with, call it the divine, call it the greater good, call it the experience of consciousness. And that if that doesn't happen, sooner or later, we might feel that we need that and we go and seek it, right? Mm. Very individual at the end of the day. And it's a, I don't think we'll ever answer it either. I think it's a very, very, very deep philosophical discussion that could go on for, well, it has gone on, as you say, you know, the book of Job has gone on for thousands and thousands. Socrates, you know, the th thousands of years. But it's, um, one thing I've noticed is you seem to reach a point in your life, as you just sort of said, you seem to reach, an, and often it'll happen by age. Do you know, I see a lot of people hit the 50s and they're like, Ah, oh, screw all this stuff. I don't care what people think anymore. Yeah, I'm looking after me. I'm going to find my own happiness. But I've also, I, there's this interesting thing that's happening with teenagers. And um, I know when I was a teenager, I didn't give a toss about any of that sort of stuff. But there's mm. this kind of, uh, and I'm really curious about this because I do a lot of work with young people. It's, you've got, it seems to be a divide. Like there are a lot of teenagers that are kind of, um, I don't even want to know about that stuff. You know, I just I totally, I'm just so distracted by my phone. I couldn't care less about the stuff that you're talking about. But then there's another type of type, and I'm not saying there's only two, but another type that they're saying, I want justice in this world. I want meaning and purpose. I want to only support companies that are doing good and giving back. And, you know, there seems to be this... Um, almost a, almost a, a two different types of teenagers. Do you reckon that we should be teaching this stuff to teenagers or do you think well, their brain's too young? Do you think? What do, what do you no, think? No, I don't think so for three reasons. First of all, if you look at our historical sort of progression or evolution of our culture, up till very recently, most teenagers had a spiritual underlay because mm. it 
it was just part and parcel of a culture or a yeah. tradition, right? Like like this sort of uh, a very unusual situation by which the culmination of 200 years of scientific development and the disillusion, disillusionment that has come through with, you know, sort of like the religious echelons of, of, of the world in a variety of uh, traditions, um, and and the sense of individualism that has crept through the sixties and the seventies, all of that has culminated in in a in your know, sort of a, a, a generation that that is largely in a sense not engaged with spirituality. But I, that's a very recent phenomenon, right? And so, um, you know, if people grow up, they grow up in a particular garden, and they tend to be nourished by whatever was watering that garden, yeah. or depends again on their private circumstances they might rebel against that garden right so again it's a very individual story but by and large the identity of not having a spiritual connection is relatively new mm. the second thing is and this is going to sound a little bit woo-woo almost but oh, back, good. Yeah, man, let's do woo-woo. Um, <laughs> back to that sort of first question that we we're talking about who am i who is that i all right the individual i one way to look at the idea of us being conscious within the experience of daily life as part of humanity and part of this experience, call it planetarians, right? Like we're part of this species on the planet. Um, everything suggests that there is some interconnectedness that sort of under underpins that, right? Whether it's you look through physics, you look through biology, you look at, you know, sort of the psychology of, of, of how we... Um, evolve together with certain ideas. And so imagine this this notion that when you look at the wave on the ocean, right, that ocean is showing itself up through individual waves, but the water in the waves are still the water of the ocean. In other words, in that metaphor, I might feel like a separate individual entity, an individuation of the experience of consciousness that is showing up as who I am in my story, but I'm also always part of the ocean. You know, I have my own volition, I have my own shape, I have my own form, I have my own identity, the way that I understand myself, but I'm also part of that ocean as well. I'm the wave and I'm the ocean. And so the second answer to this, you know, in terms of the teenagers, we're also always part of that. Mm. There isn't a point in which we're not somehow part of that complex whole that seems to be pulsating and evolving and, you know, sort of operating as a collective, right? Yeah. And so even if we not connect with it on an individual level, we are very much still part of that, whether we're conscious of it or not. And so it's always available for us. And at certain times, we might have experiences that helps us to sort of get a glimpse of that. Sometimes it will show in you having very similar thoughts to someone who you connected with. Yeah. And you go, oh, I was just thinking exactly the same, right? And that seems to happen by and large more with people who are you vibrate with more closely, right? Than just random people in the street. So I think that happens there. In other words, those teenagers might not feel that they seek or they're interested in a spiritual identity but they're still part of the ocean. You know, they might mm -hmm. see themselves as very individual waves that have got nothing to do with the rest, but maybe there's something there as well, right? Mm -hmm. The third thing is that ultimately I feel that most of us as teenagers 
grow up with a yearning for the greater good. It is in our natural tendency to wish for the, ten, the, the, the you know, sort of like the 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 overall goodness of 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 the group, right? And it makes sense in an evolutionary sort because me looking after you, you looking after me makes, you know, gives better chances for both of us to survive. But it also makes sense in 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 our natural being, um, which is wired toward empathy, which is wired to, towards, you know, sort of looking after the group or after uh, you know, someone in my own tribe, if I if I if I want to sort of bring it down to that level. But there's always this sort of a sense of interconnectedness, whether I'm calling it that way or I'm aware of it that way, I'm wired for that. I'm mm. wired to be part of a group. I'm wired to respond to that. Um, if I'm going to paraphrase, um, I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas who was talking about the God-shaped hole. Um, I think we're all walking around with a tribe-shaped hole in our heart. You know, we were meant to live that way. And so as teenagers, when we grow up, we look for that. And we've try and find it in the fact that we are idealistic and we find things that are important for us to believe in and then we work towards it i mean look at the look at the environmental movement around mm -hmm. the world and how it is now being kind of led by young people in you know between between you know sort of teens and mid 20s those are the people who are really the passionate sort of pushers and and leaders of that sort of movement because they really feel connected to that. Well, most of us, you know, especially people who look like us, we're a little bit more cynical and we kind of like spend a whole lot of our times, you know, being more busy about whatever, right? Mm. At that age, you're looking for that, you know, how do I serve the greater good? There is there is a wiring inside us that meant to do that. Yeah. Well, I love all that. Firstly, I love the um the 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 metaphor. That is a fantastic metaphor, and I've heard similar to that before, and it, and it is very, 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 very true. And I love the, the fact that you're talking about frequency. You know, I think that a lot of people don't even even consider that, but you know, I I can feel the frequency of others that are my frequency. Do you, you know? And it's it's very, very, very easy to to be to be connected to those people. I think you, it's interesting when you're talking about the teenagers and the environmental movement too, is that um, I've spoken to our own teenagers about it and they've said, yeah, I'm worried about it, but I don't care about it, but that's just their language because I don't know what to do. do you, so in actual fact, they're really quite scared, but, but, but they don't actually have the tools to do anything about it. I think the kids are the future of our planet and we, we need to support them. I support a lot of young people around the world with climate change projects. And, you know, I think that I think it's really important. Michael, I'm interested just going back one step um, because I, I – I thought to ask you, and then I try to focus on what you're saying instead of holding a question, and I lost it completely. Um, what got you into this journey? Like, why, why? You know, we were talking about before adversity, and you know, people start seeking and all that kind of stuff. What was it for you that said, "I'm going to be a happiness coach"? You might not have said that at first, but like, what what pushed you into that journey where that ended you up? <laughs> uh, that's a really good English, but anyway, had you ending up as a um, happiness coach? <laughs> uh, I guess you could you could say that I that I had two um, you know two motifs that kept appearing in my life that that sort of over time directed me towards that. The first was that I, I grew up in the Middle East and 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 you know in a fairly pre precarious situation in terms of the local politics and the dynamics around me, 
And so I grew up believing in a particular narrative of survival and the idea of, you know, like you have to protect yourself against others and all that. And then as a young man, when I actually became a soldier and participated in that process, I came out of it convinced that this can't be the right way to solve things. Like I, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have the the emotional depth or or the vocabulary to be able to explain at the time what I was feeling, but I knew that it was wrong. And so mm. that throws me into uh, a, a, a sort of a process of what you could call a soul searching of some sort, where I, I really try to understand how is it possible that, uh, you know, based on a particular narrative, we choose to do things that don't feel like they're in our inherent nature. And how can we be so convinced of that narrative to the point where we prepare to kill someone else for it? And, and, you know, there was, there was a, a really long process of reckoning in terms of what's okay and what's not okay. Like, you know, like, do I, do I never lift a hand when someone else is lifting a hand on me? Like, where is the right line there? And I'm not saying that I, I can justify, oh, this is the right line and this is yeah. it's not the right line. I'm just saying that there is an individual choice in that. And when you grow up as a young person in those situations, you don't understand that there is an individual choice in that because you don't even know that it's possible to think that way. Everyone else is speaking in a particular language. You buy into that language. Mm. Um, and so that in itself sort of um, threw me into that process of trying to unearth, who am I? Am I that story? What happened if I, you know, I suffer amnesia and then I get up tomorrow morning and I have no idea about that story in terms of my origin. Does that story still hold value? Mm. Or can I find another story that holds value? So all that sort of process, you know. In other words, to use the language that we used previously, I was trying to figure out, am I the wave? Am I the ocean? What does that look like? Why do I become a wave? You know, how do I stop being a wave? How do I go back to the ocean? That sort of stuff. The second thing is that I also realized that there are good days and bad days. So sometimes I get up in the morning and the day is great. And other times I get up in the morning and the day is shit. And I thought to myself, okay, so so I can choose to just, um, you know, sort of fluctuate with the experience of the day in terms of how I feel about it. But I also got to see that sometimes the day is shit and I still feel good. Or sometimes mm -hmm. it's great and I still feel shit. And that didn't make sense to me. Like, what is it that creates the experience of feeling great that's got nothing to do with the circumstances of that day? Mm. And, and that exploration led me to understand that that kind of happiness that I'm talking about, the happiness of being anchored in the conviction of the goodness in life, regardless of what's, what's your experience for that day, being anchored in the interconnectedness that that is surrounding us, and trusting it and trusting the natural intelligence that arises through that, that happiness is what I want to kind of figure out for myself. And then, you know, I, I wouldn't claim to have, you know, arrived at any particular state, but I saw that there are certain practices that allow you to rest more and more in that state with being less, while being less frazzled by circumstances. And then I looked around and I saw there's a lot of people who seems to be struggling with that, right? <laughs> Maybe I can work with this. So, so it was a sort of an evolution that took a lifetime, I, I, I guess. But I certainly didn't start thinking, oh, I'm gonna, you know, sort of coach people about that as much as the combination of the process and the models that I was interested in looking through mm -hmm. uh, ended up bringing me into that position.
Well, I love that. I love that. And I think um, I love what you're saying about the the, the traditional cult narratives, you know, and, and that we just buy into it. So I think all all kids buy into whatever's whatever's being told around them. And when you're talking about war, you know, it's kind of like, you know, do I believe in this so much that I would kill? You know, and I I often think about that recently, you know, with the the Russian soldiers, you know, and and I I absolutely I'll I'll go on record. I hate what Russia's doing to you know with Ukraine. I bloody hate it. And there are going to be so many broken lives, not only in Ukraine, but also families around the world. But I think one of the things we tend to forget too are the lives of those Russian young Russian soldiers in, in exactly the same situation as you were. Do you, you know that they're they're sort of sent in there, and and there's got to be there's got to be many of them that are brainwashed and then come out with like you that questioning my life's now ruined because I killed people you know because of a narrative that I believed in and I didn't have the the emotional intelligence perhaps you know to even to even question if why I was doing that even though deep down I knew it was wrong and I think that the sooner we do start uh you know really assigning our values and what's really important and start asking the big questions the sooner we do that in life the yeah. sooner we can start saying well no, it's not okay to follow somebody else's narrative and it's not okay to, uh, unless it's for good, you know, unless it's actually, and when you talk about being a tribe, you know, we've we've got to be better at saying, well, are my actions and are my beliefs and my narrative actually contributing to the bigger tribe? You know, the, the, the ocean, as you say, you know, is, am I a wave that's just splashing all over the place or am I a wave that's actually carrying this ocean to, to a good place? And yeah, it's a it's a deep question and a deep thought, you know, and it can I think you can, you know, I'm a wondering type person. I wonder and wonder and wonder and ask all the time. And I think sometimes you can get yourself, I get myself into a little frazzle because I can ask for too too long. But I think when we don't ask, we don't, you know, Margaret Mead was great. She was an educator and she said we should teach children how to think and not what to think. And I think that's such a critical thing. If we all start thinking how to think and are taught how to think, you know, I, I then I think a lot of things in here, but we, we start to ask the questions that guide us to the stuff you're talking about, you know, and even if we can't figure it out ourselves, it leads us to people like you, you know, to say, well, what are your thoughts on this? How can you help me? And, and mentors, coaches, sometimes they only appear for three months, do you, you know, or, or something, or or they could be for two years, but it's that next step, it's that next um, piece of the puzzle that we can put together and st- start to to build ourselves into who, who am I and how am I contributing to this? Yeah. To this. That's that's a that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, I want to paraphrase a story because I just want to I want to take out of it any kind of reference to a particular tradition. Um, I think the point that it makes is is universal. Yeah. And, and the story is someone who was asking a spiritual teacher, how do you define spirituality? And and he said, well, you need to look for two parameters. The first one is, is it your own experience? In other words, it's not something that you would just read in a book. I mean, you might read it in a book and tried it and practice it and yeah. so if it works for you. But it's not just something that someone else said or something, you know, you got from another source and it's not your own experience. 
right? And the second is that if the practice of it in some way or somehow leads to the cessation of suffering, any kind of suffering, your suffering, someone else's suffering, an animal suffering, planetary suffering, whatever it is, right? And so if you can apply those two principles, you are now in the land of being a spiritual being, of being mm -hmm. connected to what we're here to do, what we're here to grow for, right? And and I think in that sense, the idea of, of you know, how do I experience being a wave while figuring out my part of the ocean how mm -hmm. do i do that is really kind of um on 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 course because you don't actually need to know content right you just need to ask the right questions in terms of how you're going to figure out this minute and then the next minute and then the next minute yep. and if you think about it like that it becomes really quite interesting because you can take the narrative of any questions that you ever need to ask yourself or make a decision or any dilemma that you ever face or any choice that you ever need to make. And you can look at it at the level of the narrative and the narrative will tell you, well, that's the story and that's the decision you need to make. And those are the possible results. All good, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But you can strip it down to the architecture of each decision. And lo and behold, the architecture of each decision is just... Is this decision in the way that I make that choice is going to contribute towards more harmony, yep. more love in the world, more connection or not? Yeah. Right? And if you you start your working assumptions on how I'm going to make a good decision from looking for that edge, like is this going to help or is this going to disturb? Is this going to connect or is this going to rip apart? How is it this decision decision is going to help? Rather than try and figure it out at the narrative level, which confuses us because there's so so many multiple narratives running at the same time, yeah. that's a really good guidance in terms of like you know what's next for me. And it even goes deeper than that, and I, I absolutely love that. That's and I always think that how is it going to benefit the greater good? But sometimes when you're talking about is it going to rip apart? Is it going to cause a problem? Is it going to? So, I also think that sometimes we are going to upset at a micro level in order to get, be a better, bigger contribution at a macro level. Do you, you know, sometimes we've got to disagree with people that we wish we didn't have to do that, you know, but I, but I am going to, I am going to call you out on it. I am going to take you up on it because, you know, you're, you're causing this tension that is actually causing suffering to the greater good. And therefore I'm going to, call you out and cause tension myself be yeah. with you because I want the greater good to be it's it, it's big stuff but I, I I absolutely I love this stuff so what about um you know we're talking about self-knowledge and you talked about contentment you know happiness and contentment at the very start there's a lot of talk around about mindfulness and sitting in a space and and you know where we're I was talking about wondering you were talking about asking questions you're thinking and that mindfulness is you know I think that's an important part of this how, how do you how do you see it and how do you see it fitting into this I love that um so first of all there seems to be you know a lot of Mindfulness has become very ubiquitous, right? It's yeah. like there's mindfulness in business, and you know, yeah. mindfulness in painting, and my, all good. I'm not, I'm not judging any of it. Or I'm not berating any of it. But I'm just saying that because 
there's so many streams and strands now to the conversation around mindness, mindfulness. Um, it's really good for us to sort of get to a point where we have an understanding of how does it show up as content and how does it show up as process, right? And so as content or as an explanation, it's essentially the ability that we have at any given moment to be present with our experience, not to judge it, and to have the awareness that we're present with our experience. Yeah. Sometimes you see children being really focused on doing something, you know, when they kind of like, they do something and they stick their tongue out, right? They're being really there. They're really present with what they're doing, but there's no awareness of doing that. They're just totally in the experience. That's kind of a, you know, there's a level of mindfulness in it, but the mindfulness that we talk about in terms of like, okay, what's what's the, you know, what's the orientation toward the mindful experience is you're aware of having that experience. You're aware of being aware of having that experience. And you have that experience without preference to it's good experience or bad experience. You're just being present with it. The technology of it, right? The process of it. How do you actually become mindful? That's very interesting because most of us tend to assume that, oh, you mean like sitting on the cushions and, you know, spending 20 minutes a day trying not to think. That's the kind of like you know, the, the yeah. overall sort of perception of it. But actually, can we be present in any given moment? Can I be present while I drive a car? Can I be present while I eat my food? Can I be present while I'm having this conversation? That is fascinating to me because it only takes one second to get into presence. We just need to be aware of our breath in this in this moment right now. And suddenly I'm present. Like we have the capacity to be, we have this, this sort of magic elevators to be present in any given moment, simply by becoming aware of the fact that I'm breathing. And mm -hmm. for as long as I'm breathing, I can do that. Right. Um, and so how do I apply this ability to connect with the present moment and stay present through all the moments that I tend to be out of presence by thinking about the future or the past that's really where the practice becomes, right? How do I how do I do um, enough of that so it becomes my resting space? It becomes mm -hmm. my go-to when I want to do something. I start with being mindful rather than, you know, just being an automatic pilot. So the research suggests that most of us run about ninety-five percent of the time, ninety-eight percent of the times are unconscious of what we're doing. In other words, we yeah. do stuff, but we're not there. How many times? And all of us have had that experience. You get into the car and you drive to work or you drive back from work and you get home or you get to work and you realize, I wasn't in the car that whole time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Where was I, right? <laughs> now, that's okay. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing that, like, it's not about a good experience or a bad experience, but it's the awareness of that capacity to stay in the present moment with the experience that we're having and then develop the ability to move backward and allow the space of in between me and the experience, there is the capacity for me to choose whether I want to judge that experience or not. And mm -hmm. there is a capacity in me to decide how am I going to judge that experience. That gives you a lot of power in terms of happiness because most of the time we're unhappy is because we're arguing with reality. Something happened and we don't like it in ourselves, or we don't like it with other people or we don't like the circumstances. And now we are, you know, in, in disagreement with what's going on. 
and yes. we spend a lot of time, you know, sort of worrying about it and trying to change it and manipulating it and just being annoyed with it because it's not the way we wanted it. Or, oh, this is what's happening. Okay, and now what? Like, what's the gift? What can I learn? How can I stretch from that? Because there's not much point. The, the biggest illusion that we have, it's, 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 you know, it's fascinating how much energy we spend trying to control what's going on. And 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 it's a it's a double-edged sword because it's that drive to control what's going on that gives me the ability to sit in an air-conditioned room, right? Or indeed drive a car. I want to control my ability to get from A to B and do it faster. That developed, you know, amazing modes of transport, right? But it's also the same drive of control that often gives us our most unhappy moment. And if we have the illusion of control. I think anything that came out of the pandemic, and you can argue about various things around that, but one very clear opportunity to understand something about life and something about ourselves is we have no control. Hmm. What's going to happen? We have control of how we're going to interact with that, but we have no control about what's going to what's going to happen. So, so that particular ability to differentiate between what I have power over, what I have agency over, and how do I expedite or exercise that agency in the most harmonious, expanded, happy way, that is mindfulness. That mm -hmm. is a technology of mindfulness. And that is also what you get out of that practice because you suddenly become a lot less perturbed by what's going on and a lot more interested and curious in your relationship with what's going on in a way that empowers you, in a way that makes you know, brings benefit to the group around you or the situation and so on. Mm, I love that. And it's uh, the words, ex the word expectations is coming up in my mind as you're talking about the control, you know, and I think expectations is, you know, what, what un it just undoes us all the time because nothing ever turns out the way we expect it to turn out. But uh, I love it. So, so you've got a, um, a school of life in Melbourne. So is that, Am I correct in that? I think that's what you and or at the School of Life. No, you. I think you went there once. Yeah, yeah. Tell right. me about that, Michael. I'm bloody. Yeah. I'm confused. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's definitely not my School of Life. So the School of Life is essentially uh, an institute that was pulled together by the philosopher Alain de Botton, who's based in Europe, um, who reasoned that. You know, if you want to be a lawyer or a plumber or or any kind of you know profession, you need to study to do that. You know, we need to study yeah. sometimes to become, you know, whatever, right? And yet, we hardly ever seem to be able to study properly how to live life successfully. Yeah. You know, how to choose a partner wisely, how to choose a job wisely, how to live a job wisely. You know, how to have a conversation, how to find meaning in life, how to enjoy life. So he developed this model in which there is a school that teaches all those classes and uh in 2000 and i think 13 or 14 around 2013 um around that time anyway a local group here small giants academy which is led by uh, barry lieberman and daniel almagor uh reached out to him and say can we open a local branch and so they were the first outside branch because the original school of life was open in in uh in london the first branch was open here in uh, Melbourne, and then they opened another one in Sydney. And consequently, there were other branches around the world. And so for a certain amount of time, I was part of the faculty uh -huh. uh, that, uh, that taught those classes. And I was fortunate enough to, 
you know, teach there for a few years and I've discovered a, a fascinating edge to, especially to Melbourne, but in general, where I saw that people are hungry for meaningful conversations. People are hungry to, like there is a, like I said, there is a, you know, we walk around with a wilderness and a tribe shape holes in our heart. There's, there's a hunger for meaning. Like what, you know, what, what, what am I here for? And how and how do I do it in a great way? How do I live greatly? And how do I live greatly in connections with other people? Um, and so it was a it was a beautiful place to work at. And uh, unfortunately, when the pandemic um, sort of hit us, uh, you know, they were considering putting it online. But then the school in London was doing stuff online, and so they folded it. I do want to point out that they've opened a brilliant new entity called the Small Giants Academy. Yeah. Uh, which do very much programs, uh, very deep groove programs around that work, that kind of work. Um, and last year, I had the um, I had the pleasure and the fortune to uh, co-facilitate a program on a transformational leadership called Interconnected Leadership uh, with um, with the woman who runs their flagship program, which is the Master of Business and Empathy, uh, Tamsin Jones. So, so. The, 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 I'm, I'm mentioning all of this is because even though the School of Life does not uh, exist here in Australia yet, you can get classes online and it's worthwhile to try them. Um, I, I do think that there are materials and there are programs and there are courses that are available all around us. And we only have to ask. We only have to look. If we want to know something, this is a beautiful aspect of the universe um, that can be captured in the older dodge of asking you shall be you know sort of given yeah in other words if you're curious about something by the fact that you are curious about it you will start to notice the opportunities that the universe make available for you to understand and grow and learn and expand yourself into that domain so michael 100 because i've got a sign up here i'm a i'm so big on that it's a sign that i look at every day for god's sake karen tell the universe what you want and it's it's just the universe responds you know and so we we just have to sit with it i'm curious about this um you said about Melbourne, you know, that there seems to be this theme about Melbourne, this sort of difference about Melbourne that has that got this hunger for inquiry, you know, about about life. Do you think that, and, and you're not going to know the answer, but I'm just going to sort of put something in your mind so that you can ponder even further. Melbourne is considered, you know, one of the most multicultural cities in the world, you know, and I just wonder how much those two are connected do you, you know that that I, I see all these people around me and you know we have an acceptance generally speaking i'm not saying that other cities don't have the same acceptance but that's i wonder i wonder if it's a lot of it is stemmed from a curiosity about who are these people around me what's their background where do they come from what have they been through what is their life you know, i I'm, I don't know. I'm making that up, but it just sort of it hit me really strongly. I thought, wonder, I wonder what the connection between the the big questions and, and a deep cultural awareness is. I, I, I would tend, to, you know, we we sort of speculating, no doubt, but yeah. but I would tend to say that it's it's a fairly reasonable speculation in the sense that until you get exposed to something which is outside your usual way of being, doing, or understanding yeah. the world, you don't know that that exists. Hmm. Or you, you, 
you might be curious in general, but you can't be curious to that which you don't know. You yeah. don't know that you don't know. Yeah. And then suddenly in a multicultural city, you kind of know that you don't know because there's all these people who look differently, think differently, have different cultural connotations and behave differently. And it's an opportunity for us, right, to grow, to kind of say, well, okay, they've arrived at that particular relationship with life. I've arrived at a different relationship with life. Let's see what we can learn from each other, right? And and it's an interesting choice that all of us have available for us by which we can see multiculturalism as a threat to our way of living, mm. which is secure and, you know, sort of like familiar and it's safe um, versus the curiosity and the ability to stretch outside our way of living and grow in different ways, yep. which is the real boon of, of living in a multicultural society. It's interesting that originally, and this is, we haven't got to speak about it, but I think it's such an important part of this, the process of self-knowledge. It's really worth mentioning it. One of the reasons why we're not happy, one of the main reasons why we're not happy, uh, one of the most difficult aspects of trying to function in, in a, um, on a level of sanity, on a level of psychological kind of robustness that is available for us in general, uh, but it's getting challenged daily is because our operating systems, our brains have been nurtured and evolved to, f to function in a very specific environment, which was survival as a small group of people on the savannah. Mm. Did it really well overall, right? But we've, changed too fast and we grew too fast as, and we evolved too fast as a species in terms of the way that we live and interact with each other for the brain to be able to hold that complexity and not freak out. Mm. So originally, the idea of seeing someone who looks differently to you was first and foremost perceived by as a threat because chances are that if they don't look like you, they're not part of your tribe, therefore they, you know... Mm likely might want to get your waterhole or to you know sort of like come hunting in your area or whatever and so this this notion of being suspicion of 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 someone who looks differently or someone who's you know not of my tribe was actually part of the wiring that we evolved on when we you know evolved on the savannah but of course that's not relevant to us anymore mm -hmm. and the richness that the world is experiencing because we have so many cultures is the you know the cross fertilizations of ideas and cultures and traditions and 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 you know all that backgrounds that each one of us bring to you know to the new modern city from all those cultures that's a fantastic opportunity for us to stretch and indeed for us to be able to deal with the kind of world class and world size problems that we have we gotta we gotta come together as a species not as this that culture and places like Melbourne and Sydney and Australia in general and other places where you got all those beautiful sort of mixture of cultures, right? Those are the places that give us hope for that. And interestingly enough, just as a sort of a last point, even on the level of just absolute genetics and nature, what do you happen when you get a group of people and they interbreed versus what do you get uh, when you get a group of people and, and, and uh, sorry, when I mean a group of people is a homogeneous homogeneous group of people and they interbreed mm. when you get a group of people who come from all different cultures and they you know and and they sort of have have offsprings right on the one hand you get a decrepit you know rapidly um yep. 
evolving kind of problems in terms of how we show up and how we appear versus this, you know, where do you find the most stunning looking people in the Caribbean, in New York, in Tel Aviv, in Melbourne, in, in a place where you got different, different origins, different nations, different races mixed. Nature seems to like it because, you know, yeah. it creates the, so there's something there for us to understand. There's some, you know, the idea that we, we connect across differences makes us stronger. It makes us stronger genetically, but it also makes us strong culturally. You know, this is, and this is not being derogatory, but it's it's the same with, if you've only got to look at dogs, and I mean, and, and I'm not sort of, I'm not, well, actually, I like dogs better than people, so I'm allowed to say it. But it's kind of like, if you look at dogs, dog species, yeah, dog breeds, you know, the more they interbreed dogs, the, the more they're at the vet, the more problems they've got, Just and it just gets worse and worse and worse. But all the dogs that are, we call them the Heinz variety, you know, I don't know, you know the, that's, a bit of everything, yeah. they are the most robust and balanced yeah. dogs. Do you, you know they are way, way better dogs, you know, way more able, more adaptable and more capable of dealing with things. And you've you've got to you've got to wonder if that same philosophy doesn't apply over to the human species. You know, it's just that the more we've got of anything else, the the better better we can deal with it or the more familiar it is. Even even our brains, you know, well, that that's familiar to me. Do you know? And this little bit's familiar. And that little bit's familiar. It's sort of a lot more, yeah, it's just it's just not as hyper-focused and hyper. We get sick with our hyper-focusism, and I made that word up. But, you know, like we do, we do get sick. And I love that. Know. I love that. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the chances are in Australia that in about two to three generations, Everyone is going to have a variety of skin, you know, sort of tones. Like it's just going to be like any kind and every kind and no one's going to care anymore. Yeah, good. Like it's it's about time that we sort of transcend that tribalism, not because it doesn't serve us, it hasn't served us originally. It served us very well. We became the strongest tribe on the planet in terms of a species. But we can't act in a tribalist manner anymore because tribalists, size thinking is not going to deal with global size problem we need global yeah. size thinking all of us need to understand it and come together yeah it's a consciousness that we need to collectively go through yeah i agree well you know with all of this um and you know we're all sort of learning to get off the bench and you know i absolutely love that whole get off the, i love get off the bench absolutely. um and and you know so getting off the bench to I guess, to take action, you know, to improve our lives and to make it better. Um, with a lot of this, um, I guess, philosophical explanation that you're talking about, how is that going to help us? What's the connection between the philosophical ex? My God, it's too early. I don't know if it's too early or too late in the day. Philosophical exploration. How, what's the connection with actually taking action? How are we gonna how are we gonna take the thoughts and then put it into action and and get our lives moving to a much better state? What are we, what are we top tip? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. And you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you think, right? It it really matters what you do. Yeah. Your your future life is going to look like the you know the, the 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 total cultivation of what you did in the years before that right yep. that's what's important so i think it's absolutely a really good um you know it's a must that we talk about that as you know the final sort of piece so how do you take all that understanding that we talked about you know self knowledge interconnectedness and the, 
How do you turn mindfulness? How do you turn it into something that actually works for you and helps you to change? And so I, I would suggest a couple of things indeed. The first is that it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be worried. It's okay to kind of think what's going to be going not well or, you know, what's going to go wrong. Not, not because that's a good strategy, but that's because the way that our brain is wired to think. Mm. There is no, uh, there is no value for the brain to be happy, right? In in a in a in a real kind of down in the savanna, try to survive the lion whales, right? The one who was happy didn't have children. It's the one who was like, where are the tiger? Where are the lion? What's going to go wrong? Who's going to attack me? Those are the people that had children, right? So 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 we we have a tendency for we have a negative bias that 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 behooves us to think about what's going to go wrong right except there's no tigers around there's no lions around especially here in australia you know like we are absolutely brilliantly lucky uh in the way that relative to most other places on the planet we have you know we have few real problems right um this is you know like no disrespect meant to individuals who might have really tough life is and there's lots of them but generally as a society and in the ability that we have to choose as individuals yeah. right we we're relatively in a good spot and so the first practical tip is learning to identify when does your thinking serve you and when does it not and being able to become more self-aware so you catch yourself when you think those negative thoughts. You catch yourself when you're being too worried, too much into, you know, sort of what's going to go wrong. And being able to develop the muscle by which you recognize that it's just your habitual way of thinking. That's yeah. the first. And then the second step is, well, how do I replace that sort of thinking, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, to to borrow from my my um, my dear teacher, uh, Rick Hansen, who who developed this idea of positive neuroplasticity, mm. right? what you think is what you become. Yeah. The way that you think about things is the way that you're going to wire your brain into perceiving things and think about them even more. And so how do we flip that switch between the, the natural default tendency to think about what's going to go wrong and start to think about what, what's going right and how can I make it right if it doesn't go right the way I feel, you know, that... that mm. That is a really interesting domain for us to explore. And it starts with very, very little kind of um, steps by which you want to notice the good things in your life rather than just the bad things in your life. We tend to notice what's going to go wrong, but not what's going right. So acknowledging, being grateful, writing a journal every day where you like the three things that went great today. Yeah. Being present when you're suddenly out in the garden or in nature and you see this beautiful tree or there's a leaf leaves floating you know in front of you or there is a beautiful um, happy animal like a puppy or even a baby all of those things that are full of joy and naturally imbued with joy yeah. and we tend to overlook them you want to start noticing them more make, make make it your practice to notice the good parts of life which we have a lot yeah. and and acknowledge them and celebrate them on a regular basis, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. And the second thing I would say is notice the places where you take yourself too seriously on a personal level. Someone yeah. said something and he doesn't agree with the way you think about life. So what? 
<laughs> like we love to get offended. <laughs> it's a, it's a, you know, sort of a human pastime to kind of like find someone who said something that doesn't agree with what I think and then get really annoyed about it. And, you know, like okay, all that sort of Heck. <laughs> is it real for you just because someone thinks something doesn't make it your reality you don't have to buy into someone else's bigotry or idiocy or the fact that you know they're doing something if it impacts you how do i get resourceful in interacting with that person so i can conv convince them or convert them into you know a more holistic way of by all means engage with that yeah but get annoyed, getting offended taking life personally because someone said something that's really, really, um, you know, wasted energy. Not, 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 not fun. Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. So I love it. So going back to what you just said before, it's looking for the good things. It's basically rewiring our reticular activating system, isn't it? You know, because we, 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 we get what we look for. Do you, and if, if we're constantly looking for good, we're going to get a lot more of good and notice a lot more of good. I like that you say. Um, Can I just emphasize something? It's not yeah. even get what we look for we notice what we pay attention to yeah right in fact um i think it was william james you know the the uh, father of modern psychology in the u.s who said something along the line if for the moment what you pay attention to is your reality yeah your brain is perceiving at any given moment millions of bits of data but as magnificent as it is in terms of its computing capacity, it can only process few hundreds of those every minute. And it tends to process those that you're familiar with. It tends to process those that you that are more that are more aligned with what you believe the world is to be. Yeah. Is why you can have that amazing experience where you go out with someone to somewhere and something happened and you both have a completely different reading about it. <laughs> how that unfold or you have an argument and they like they write and you write because you see the things very differently. So, so, you know, understand that, that you, you have the capacity to cultivate how you're going to read what's going on and you can orient yourself into seeing it as a gift rather than as a disturbance, even when it doesn't feel good, you know, like, like this, this, this boring, you know, sort of obsession with just all of it's got to be comfortable and all of it's got to be, you know, sort of, no, <laughs> yeah. it's okay to be bored. It's okay to be, you know, sort of like, um, like if you just don't feel good, be with not feeling, be okay with not being okay. Yeah, that's curiosity that's really worthwhile developing. Yeah, Michael, I love this. I've absolutely loved this conversation. It's it's um, been very deep and philosophical, and it's and 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 woo woo some woo woo in there, and that they're the conversations I absolutely love. So thank you. Now, where can people find you to um, do some coaching with, and to or to have further deeper conversations with, whatever they want to do? Because I reckon you're worth you you are worth chasing down. So where can people? My pleasure. Where can people find you? So the easiest way is if you want to connect with me on social media, uh, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but the word positive, neuro, which is N-E-U-R-O, and then plasticity. Yeah. Tagline, positive neuroplasticity is my handle on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, if you look for mindfulness coaching or just look for my name, Michael Bartura. Uh, my website used to be positiveneuroplasticity.com.au, but it is a mouthful. So if you look for happyhabits.com.au, happy yeah. habits, essentially positive neuroplasticity. 
Um, but yeah, you, you, if you just Google my name, you'll find my website, you'll find my social media. Please reach out. I, I'm I'm most grateful that that my you know my interaction, my engagement with life is in the capacity of being able to sort of interact with people and have those sort of conversations. And and here is the the most kind of bizarre and yet exciting thing for me that I've discovered. You don't need to change a lot of your thinking to be a lot happier. Yep. In other words, what are the 20% of your thinking that creates 80% of your experience? That can be changed in a couple of conversations. You don't need a lifetime coaching. You certainly don't need to take a program. Although I run those, I have programs around positive neuroplasticity um, that I've written and I facilitate. But sometimes you just need an hour of, you know, reorienting the way that you think and yeah. you will be a lot happier. So please don't hesitate to reach out for a chat. Um, you know, I delight in engaging with people who wants to change themselves and be part of this amazing, incredible experience called life. So, well, I I have absolutely loved this, and I really do hope people reach out to you because um, I'm going to put all those things in the show notes anyway. But because because I just think that you you know you you've got such a beautiful handle on it, and it's you just got such a beautiful attitude, you know, and and your vibration is moving out into the world to make it um, the frequency, the entire frequency better, and and that's what we need a lot more of. So <laughs> thank you. I'm getting hot behind behind the ears, um, Karen. <laughs> and and may I point out that you know back to this idea that you only see as a, a minute part of what actually happened. We usually tend to see who we are anyway. So what you see is also what you deliver um, to uh, the I really appreciate you inviting me on, on this and, and joyful to have that conversation. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so very much. <laughs> Take care. See you, Michael. Bye. Oh, guys, I absolutely love that. And I'll tell you, yeah, Michael said in there, we might go woo-woo. Oh, wow, I love woo-woo. But you know what? I think that was such a really deep philosophical conversation. And at the very end, you know, Michael talking about how to put that into action, and it's not that hard. And, you know, he's, I like what Michael's saying about, you know, some days going to be shit, and that that's it is what it is, you know, and it's about how we just say, well, today's shit, and, you know, fair enough, and let's get on with life. And I think, I don't know, there were, I, there were just so many gold nuggets in there, and I just love just love his um, metaphors and anyway I could just I could I could rehash the whole hour so I won't do that and spend another hour here but honestly that was just fantastic so um as Michael said you know if you get in touch with him he can he can start to shift a few things in an hour or two hours or something and I reckon it's well worth doing and you can find him at happy ha happyhabits.com.au all that's going to be in the show notes but um I really hope that was food for thought and really got you thinking about asking the bigger questions in life. And it is so true that that we have a narrative that we've grown up with or that, you know, is around us. And well, sometimes it can really hurt to challenge that narrative and to start asking the bigger questions. But I think it's really well worth asking the bigger questions to really get a handle on what's important to me and who am I and how do I show up and you know, and we're not we're not perfect. We're sometimes going to show up as shitheads, and that's that's life. But you know, who do we generally show up as, and what difference are we making? 
really, really matters. So anyway, I hope you really love that. Um, again, thank you very much for joining me every week. I value it more than you know, because I can't actually get to all of you to tell you, but please know that I really appreciate it. So I will see you again next week. See ya. Thanks for joining me. As always, I hope this episode inspired you. If you know somebody who's taken courageous action to create something that's making a difference for other people, let me know about it. Go to my website, karenvaughan.com, tinker around there, have a bit of a look and send me a message. I can't wait to hear from you. And remember, you're worth it. Your unique talents and gifts need to be out in this world. And I'm so passionate about inspiring you to achieve that. So you've listened to this episode. Just say yes, make the decision and put one foot in front of the other. See you next week.